Today on Soundtrack Alley, I'll be delving into the unique world of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I'll discuss the film and really enjoy the discussion of the score itself. There will be some unique elements to the score and how it plays throughout the film. I hope you enjoyed the wonderful score by Alan Silvestri as well. So sit back and relax as the show starts now. I am your host, Randy Andrews. Today on Soundtrack Alley, I'll be discussing who framed Roger Rabbit. Let's get into the discussion, shall we? This movie is the first and only, as of 2022, time uh, that cartoon characters from Walt Disney and Warner Brothers have appeared together on screen. Since the movie was being made by Disney's Touchstone Pictures, Warner Brothers would only allow their biggest cartoon stars, such as Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, if they got as much screen time as Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. For that reason, they were always in pairs, such as the piano battle between Daffy and Donald, and the parachute scene with Bugs and Mickey. This was continued with Porky Pig and Tinkerbell at the end of the movie. Bob Hoskins said that for two weeks after seeing the movie, his young son wouldn't talk to him. When finally asked why, his son said he couldn't believe his father would work with cartoon characters such as Bugs Bunny and not let him meet them. (laughs) With an estimated production budget, of $70 million, this was the most expensive film produced in the 1980s and had the longest on-screen credits for a film. When Eddie takes Roger into the back room at the bar where Dolores works to cut apart the handcuffs, the lamp from the ceiling is bumped and swinging. Lots of extra work was needed to make the shadows match between the actual room shots and the animation. Today, bump the lamp is a term used by many Disney employees to refer to going that extra mile on an effect just to make it a little more special, even though most audience members will never notice it. The dip that kills tunes is made of turpentine, acetone, and benzene paint thinners used to remove images from cells. Isn't that interesting? When the tune train hits the dip machine, each window shows a murder or death taking place, as viewed frame by frame. When Judge Doom's eyes are visible, he never blinks. John Cleese expressed interest in playing Judge Doom, and Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis refused, thinking nobody would take a former member of Monty Python seriously as a sadistic villain. 
In one of the earlier versions of the script, Judge Doom was revealed to be one who killed Bambi's mother. That's also interesting. Now, with the soundtrack, this was a project that began in 1982 with Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg. They were reading the screenplay and started the long process of getting the film off the page and onto screens. Now, the sound design and the detail of the props to animation for the film were groundbreaking and really astounding. It's truly an amazing piece of cinema. The cameras would move around the characters, and with props as stand-ins for the animated characters, things were brought to life more fully. Zemeckis didn't just bend the rules. He broke them to create something that had never been done before. Sure, we had seen animated characters with live-action characters before, but nothing like this. Photography and design were key for this kind of film, and never before had the animated characters all been on the screen at the same time either. This was very costly, but the end result really paid off. Some things were rather interesting, though. Bob Hoskins, when delivering lines while filming in London, you could see his breath, so they had to provide ice cubes to cool his breath so you wouldn't see the cold air, especially since it was supposed to be set in California. The most fascinating part of this process was the fact that the voice actor, Roger, would be on set working on miming Roger's movements around the set off-camera to get the movements and interactions of the animated characters moving with live environments. So props, puppets, and Jim Henson Muppets and other devices were used. The animation cells, according to the liner notes, showed that 500 animators sketched the animation out over the live-action scenes to create a fully interactive environment. A total of 82,000 cells would be produced with Richard Williams at the helm. A total of 55 minutes of animation in total. Truly astounding and really incredible. Some of the musical elements, especially with the dueling piano scene, were highly exhilarating for Silvestri. They hired two piano players to play it. Here's a quote from Silvestri himself. And then, very much in keeping with Bob's envelope stretching, he wanted to use real pianos. He didn't want the pianos animated. The whole thing was exciting and hair-raising. We hired a fantastic pianist to play the pieces for us into a MIDI environment. Then I was able to go in and start separating out the performance between the pianos. Of course, this was long before we had DAWs, which are digital audio workstations. So it was a fairly arduous task. Bob's idea was that the thing got crazier and crazier and went into what he would call tune speed. We had J.L. Cooper create a special card for us that would take the MIDI performance and interface. I believe it was a Marantz player piano language, and we fed the MIDI trigger output output into the synclavier into these two player pianos and of course we did this in the dead of winter in london the day we did it 
was an especially freezing morning. I think it was the biggest shoot of the whole movie, and the synclavier was completely frozen. So let's listen to the full cue of that from the Hungarian Rhapsody. I've worked with a lot of wise clackers, but you are despicable. This is the last time I work with someone with a speech impediment. This means war. Anybody understand what this duck is saying? So the lighting guys came and started pulling off all those hot lights around the synclavier to try to thaw this thing out. And then somebody walks into uh, with a pouch and in it is this only one in the world interface card. We plugged the thing in and held our breath and hit go. And ultimately the two pianos started playing completely insane. But Bob was doing that all over the place, technologically. When listening to the three-minute piece, it really is astounding how the melodies match, especially when they didn't have the technical tools that they have now. Now, Zemeckis, he challenged Silvestri to compose a score for Roger Rabbit that was part jazzy noir, part arc drama, and part Carl Stalling cartoon. Silvestri knew he could handle the latter because that was the beginning of my musical life, he said. I would sit with one of those blue notebooks and chopsticks. I'm talking four or five years old, and I'm playing along with Saturday morning cartoons. So those things were in my blood. Of course, unlike the way a lot of that animation has been done, where the composer would write this and store ideas or storyboards to land uh, animators. And so there would be 10, 10 there to draw to the music. Now, Bob constructed the cartoon, and then the mission was to go after the fact and score it. So it was a little bit upside down in that respect. 
It was an amazing, incredible process. I remember hearing editor Artie Schmidt talk about how we got 19 frames of film in today. The film came in such small increments and it just worked alongside as it happened. So the animation was flushed out from pencil sketches to color and then finally sweetened with shadows and textures by Industrial Light and Magic to give the tunes three-dimensional depth. But the pencil test with dialogue, you can write to because that is the animation. Further, uh, renderings and ink and paint were an elaboration of that. But in terms of timings and action and acting, you really have to have all of that with the pencil versions. So some elements of the score that define or had definite Back to the Future elements of it, Silvestri created a very changeable score considering how movable tunes really were in the film. He created a very organic score that moved around and became hyper-realistic in many ways. I mean, Roger Rabbit alone, if you watch any scenes that he is in, it's very frenetic and crazy for all those scenes, but Silvestri moves with the character. He also set the stage in the film's brief main title with the jazzy motif for upright bass, brushed percussion, piano, and saxophone. This idea and its variations invoke the film's quasi-fictional time and era cartoon noir, as Silvestri put it. We didn't worry about being too period, but there was something about that jazz approach that did harken back to that period. It didn't need to be completely literal. Silvestri brought on Ace Jazz Ensemble with him to England to swing with the London Symphony Orchestra. He worked with Jared Hay, or Jerry Hay, Tom Scott, Randy Waldman, and Chuck Domenico as other scoring sessions, but never as a band. He recorded them in an isolated booth with an orchestra playing simultaneously. Very often when there's a rhythm section or that kind of element in the score, the orchestra doesn't get or want any of that in their headset, he said. So with this ensemble, all the folks in the orchestra wanted to hear what the guys were doing. These liner notes that I've been talking about uh, really help shape how people feel about the score. Um, I've only included a small amount of them considering how much there is in the music discussion alone. I'd like to play some really well-placed music for the film. Some of the elements of the themes are really important. Some of it's considered a noir jazzy score. I like to begin by playing three key pieces, such as the main title, the cue, hitch, hike, and valiant theme. These, at least, are to begin with. The horns for jazz are always well-placed, and the cues can be listened to on their own and just enjoyed for how they are smooth and simple and yet complex in the instrument used. So here is a brief suite with these cues.
Next, I'd like to focus on some of the mystery elements of the score, such as Eddie Breaks In, Patty Cake, Fire in the Hatch, Scene from, of the Crime, and Judge Doom, or Looking for Murder. These three are highly sultry pieces of music that play to the crime noir of the 1940s with the classic jazz, but also some of Silvestri's impressive writing for the film. The score for the film can be all over the place, and these dug into the investigative nature of how Valiant is actually good at his job. He just stuck because of being a drunk and getting stuck with bad cases. Silvestri really enjoys stretching his composing skills for some of these, and you get repetitions of the themes throughout the queue, the weasels as well, such as they are the right hand of Judge Doom, and I think you'll enjoy these.
two more sets of cues I'd like to discuss briefly. First, I want to discuss about three different cues before the big reveal scene of what happens at the end of the film. I want to focus on the few cues before the final climax. Covering the basis of the tune searching for Valiant and Roger, trying to rid themselves of the menace of the two, the tune patrol and search for search the place shows how Silvestri really stretches the brass section to create this suspense for our lead characters and how the villainous weasels are trying to rid of the clues. Uh, the cue really shows the Mickey mousing, as it were, with the classic tones and the music carrying you along for the ride. The next cue in this set is, but I'm a tune looking for a murderer. Valiant puts himself in the shoes of a tune and tries to solve it deeper. The result is scary reveals. The mystery surrounds this cue immensely, and it's brilliant how Silvestri pulls it off. I love his writing no matter what he's doing. The next cue I'll play in the set would be Toontown, which really reminds me of Alan Silvestri's Back to the Future writing style and how on par he is with the elements on the screen and the notes he writes frenetically. I think you'll really enjoy these cues. Thank you. 
Thank you.
Sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. So as to end the show, I've got three other cues that neatly wrap up this amazing score uh, in a neat little bow. I'd like to briefly talk about Acme Factor or Factory, uh, Roger Fanfare, Ton of Bricks, uh, Steamroller, and End Credits and Roger Rabbit Medley. This really seals the end of the conflict with Judge Doom and the reveal about how he killed Eddie's brother. Then the big conclusion of how Judge Doom ends and the will and everything wrapped up. It's very film noir for such a modern made film. It's really successful and really well acted as well. I was amazed at how it concluded. So I want to thank you all for joining me today. Next time, I'll be covering Critters 2, and then on to more and greater things. So enjoy this suite, and until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com. 